Hello, you're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. On today's show, how do we close the gap between the theory and practice of medicine? Our guest has a career that spans three major disciplines. First, she sees herself as a clinician. She was professor of medicine at Duke University School of Medicine for several years and has published nearly 600 peer-reviewed papers. Her second major discipline is clinical data informatics with a PhD in the subject. She used this knowledge to revolutionize the use of clinical records when she worked at Flatiron Health. And finally, she was principal deputy commissioner at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, which she left in March this year. What has she learned on her quest to tackle the gap between research and medical practice? Amy Abernathy, welcome to Theory and Practice. So great to be here with you today. Thanks, Anthony and Alex. So it's really exciting to have you on the show today. I remember you and I first got to know each other when you joined Flatiron Health. And I remember many board dinners where the two of us bonded about being passionate about math and medicine. So to kind of kick it off, uh, let's go a little bit back in time and talk about how your love for both of these fields grew. Uh, I'm told that when you were eight years old, you were actually writing a math book. So when I was eight years old, my mom was teaching nursing and she had this idea. Um, So you have to imagine that I'm eight. I grew up in Orlando, Florida. My mom was a nursing instructor, but also a single mother. And she had an idea that women were coming back into the workforce to learn, you know, to be professionals like nurses, but oftentimes didn't have enough math knowledge. And in order to be able to pass the practicums in nursing and do the things one needs to do to be a competent nurse on the floor, uh, they need to be able to calculate dosages. And so my mom had this idea that you could use kitchen math, you know, a stick of butter and two cups of sugar to ultimately help nurses learn the math that they needed for the day-to-day nursing job. And so my mom wrote a textbook called Dosage Calculations that leveraged that observation. And each chapter had problems at the end of the chapter. And I would sit at the kitchen table and do the problems. And she basically calibrated the chapters based on whether or not I could do the problems. Interestingly, over time, that book, which is still in press today, and um, I think it's now in its eighth or ninth edition, my mom and I started co-writing it um, somewhere around the seventh edition. And so now I'm a co-author on that textbook, which is still called Dosage Calculations and still used to teach nurses all across the United States. What a wonderful story. So take us through a little further, you know, your high school and college years, how it was that you kind of chose to pursue a career at the intersection of these two fields. So first of all, when I went to college, I went to Penn um, and at the University of Pennsylvania, I thought I was going to be a computer science major. I had studied um computer science at Duke's talent identification program. I had worked at NASA and really thought, okay, this is it. I want to become a computer scientist. And honestly, when I got to Penn, there were very few girls in computer science. And I took introductory comp sci and was a little overwhelmed by the the difference in ratios of men to women, which is was essentially 104 to like two. And so ultimately switched to become a biochemistry major. And as a biochemistry major, I thought I was ultimately going to become a biochemist or molecular biologist as my career and a lab scientist and had learned in the lab that really the true passion of science was found at the bench. And what happened was I really started to become more and more intrigued by medicine and went to Duke for medical school because they had this third year of medical school that required you to be in the lab or some type of pure science. And I thought it would be a great time to learn the sciences. And what happened is that I was working in an immunology lab and we were building vaccines. And several days a week, I would work on designing and uh, building these vaccines. And then a couple of days a week, I would be in clinic delivering the vaccines. And I started talking to all the people in clinic and understanding why were they participating in the trials? What brought them to this clinic? You know, people were driving from Ohio to Durham, North Carolina, like why? And I became really fascinated by the human side of health and medicine. And so interestingly, ultimately 
really shifted gears and focused on clinical practice and oncology, mostly because I learned during that year that science actually really takes real shape in the clinic as you now translate what you're learning at the bench into the care of people and back again. And for me, that was really um, kind of a, a very important home. And so that's how I ended up as an oncologist. And even when I did my PhD, was, which was much later, I focused on how do we leverage data and technology to make it easier to, for example, conduct clinical trials. And so I did my PhD in evidence-based practice and informatics, which was way far away from my days of biochemistry, but very much in line with my love of computer science. Well, say a little bit more about the decision to do a PhD and what prompted it and then where it took you in your career at Duke after that. So a little unexpected, I think, uh, is that I had already uh, done part of my oncology training, was nearly done, and my husband got this um, really great job offer to uh, lead his company for Asia and Africa and Australia, and he would need to live in Australia. So suddenly I found myself potentially moving across the world and living in Australia. And I actually applied to the National Cancer Institute and proposed that I would learn some new skills in Australia that bring them back to the United States. And so that included a focus on cancer pain and palliative care, which were two professions that really were not very well developed in the United States yet, but actually there was even a chair of a department and full textbooks in Australia at the time. And then also this idea that I would start studying how large-scale population-based clinical trials were done in Australia and in Europe and start to think about how to bring that back to the United States. And so really what ended up happening was I went to Australia sort of as a part of what we do as families, right? We take care of each other and we, and we do the right thing together. And then while there, leveraged that time and my knowledge as an oncologist to really do deep exploration in cancer pain and palliative care and clinical trials, and then actually also leverage my understanding of data and computer science to figure out how do you build statewide computer networks and clinical trials networks to study cancer pain and palliative care. And that's really what ended up happening, it became my PhD. But it all really came from this observation that I could study things at scale using data and technology, and the things I study in that particular frame were cancer pain and how do we take better care of people with advanced serious illness. So you, uh, you moved from Duke to Flatiron Health in 2014. And, you know, we, we've talked with a lot of people that have done an academic to industry transition, but you've, you're, you're leaving your clinical practice to do that. That must have been wrenching. Could you tell us more about that move? Well, let me back up for just a second um, with you, Alex. And um, if you sort of really look at the foundation of my career, especially from the time I was an oncology fellow forward, I had started to really focus on this critical question of how do I take better care of the patient sitting in front of me? Maybe better care is taking care of their pain better. Maybe better care is trying to find new drugs to treat their cancer. But it was absolutely obsessed and continue to be really from that moment in time. And so when I was at Duke, I took that first R01, which was really focused on building large-scale clinical trials networks. And started to think about how do we organize uh, data and software and new devices um, and the ability to collect, for example, patient-reported data at scale. Now, this is like circa 2005, six, and think about how do we build systems in an academic health system to continuously improve the care of every patient. And that ultimately became a program called the Center for Learning Healthcare at Duke, and it really was focused on leveraging data and technology and all kinds of ways of essentially operationalizing the process of clinical discovery to take better care first of people with cancer, and then we broadened it to all chronic illness. But it was pretty clear that we you know, ran up against the boundaries of what was possible in an academic health system. First of all, to move around data to try and think about how do we build new software solutions to make it easier to collect 
information directly from patients in their homes, I kind of ran up against a barrier of not enough engineers who we could recruit into the academic setting to do this. And frankly, not enough capital um, when you think about trying to do this with grants and sort of the traditional academic mechanisms, et cetera. And so I thought, what if we could basically captivate the minds and attention of the venture capital world and Silicon Valley and health tech to now start solving this critical problem, but through new ways. Um, The other thing to mention is that at the time, I was on the board of directors of a company called Athena Health, and I could see what was possible if you had a cloud-based electronic health record and the ability to exchange data all across the country. And so really the, the reason that I made that relatively dramatic move from being a professor of medicine and oncology at Duke to joining a health tech startup in New York City is because it was pretty clear to me if we were going to basically take it to the next level in terms of leveraging data from electronic health records and all kinds of different places to try and learn more quickly about the care of every patient, I was really going to need to do it from a new space like health tech. And so that's what really drove me to look to doing something different and how I ended up at Flatiron Health, which really was focused on both building better software for oncologists, so an electronic health record and other software solutions cancer doctors needed, and then using those software solutions to then ultimately pull out data, clean up data, and generate very, very high quality data sets that could be used to determine, for example, which cancer drug worked better in a particular setting. And in building that, you were leading both machine learning engineers and oncologists. And I think leadership is is kind of a theme that we'll probably explore in the rest of the conversation. But at that moment, what were the challenges and also the kind of, what was the upside? What was the joy of bringing these two pretty different disciplines together? Well, so first of all, Alex, I'm, I'm going to like preface this by saying, I promise that this was the most joy that I've had um, up until that point in my career. So I'm going to tell you the challenges, but remember, this is the most joy that I've had. And the challenge is, is pretty interesting, right? So I come from an academic world where, you know, in academic medicine, the research scientists, uh, the, the clinician scientists like myself were almost like kind of on, t- on the top of the powerarchy, so to speak, and, and really sort of designed what was going to happen and, and how things move. And even, you know, sort of essentially the, the usual structures of things like um, promotion and, and, and jobs. And now I come to the tech world where suddenly product and engineering and essentially the process of software development suddenly becomes the most important and practically speaking powerful part of the company. And, and I was the chief medical and chief scientific officer. And meanwhile, we were really a company that was leveraging software, leveraging machine learning, leveraging the best of what state of the art had to offer as it related to data analytics, software, and and, and engineering. And yet we were needing to do that in service of healthcare, which meant that we needed clinicians at the table. And we also needed to do really um, reliable analyses that were hypothesis-driven and stakeholders like the FDA could understand, which meant that we needed quantitative scientists like biostatisticians at the table. And so what I learned was that as I moved to this new realm, there was a very different power structure. And I had, one of the first things I had to do was figure out how, how do I operate in this new world and how do I help all the people around me operate? By the way, the same words don't mean the same thing in all these different disciplines. Right. It's, you're kind of in a Tower of Babel situation where the engineers have a totally different vocabulary than the doctors for all kinds of basic stuff. Just the word table. <laughs> the word table does <laughs> does have different meanings depending on what room you're in. <laughs> so it's exactly it. You have to develop the lingua franca. The joy is actually when all of that starts to come together mm. and whether it's over karaoke or it's, you know, ultimately all of these folks learning how to talk to each other, the, the joy is, is how then suddenly people start hearing and listening as opposed to talking at each other. And then the creativity happens. Well, you know, Amy, just to double click on this for a second, when I first entered the world of software, one of the things that struck me is how 
every intuition for the right way to do things was exactly the opposite of what you learned in medicine. Uh, you know, for example, in medicine, you're taught don't order a test unless you know what you're going to do with the result. In software, it's collect all the data and we'll figure it out later. In software, it's all about rapid iteration cycles. In medicine, it's all about meticulous planning and making sure that you see the outcomes for your clinical trial and anticipate every difficulty and deviation from the plan is a failure. Even trials are projects, software is products. What were the things you learned about bringing these two very different kinds of groups together at you know an organization who arguably did it better than anyone? Wow. Um, and so first of all, Anthony, I've never heard anybody describe it so vividly, so thank you. And it it sort of strikes me that one of the things, it wasn't just building a glossary. I used to joke that, you know, we had to have the flat iron glossary, so we knew how to talk to each other. But it was really starting to see and understand how different disciplines leveraged their approach to things. Um, the one one of the ones that I remember most vividly as an oncologist was a engineering tutorial that I went to on throughput and how essentially breaking problems down into smaller steps and then solving for the steps and then combining the steps really improved for throughput. And I I really watched that and I actually started to think about how could I use throughput within the context of the way I think about taking care of a patient um, and, and, and use that quite differently. And similarly, we found that engineers were hungry for understanding what do doctors do and how do they make decisions. And so one of the things that we did was we took engineers to clinic and we ultimately had one day a week that the engineers could sign up to go with several of our oncologists to their clinic. Um, anyway, of course needed to deal with really the critical issues of privacy, et cetera. So that's important. But you know, once you've made sure that those things have been taken care of, the opportunity for an engineer to see what it looks like when an oncologist has to make, you know, a relatively complex decision where the decision's not only drug A matches this particular molecular target, but has that decision has to be made while a family is crying and while you're trying to figure out is this the right thing to do with th- for this person at this moment in time with all of the other things going on in this person's life and all the other complexities of comorbidities and all the other things that have happened to them in the past, like they, the engineers felt developed such a different appreciation for what, both what's the miracle of medicine and the complexity of medicine. And so by basically doing that exposure to both sides, we started developing new ways of solving problems that appreciated how each other solved problems. Let me ask you one other question before you leave this topic. I remember one of the first times I sat next to you at a board dinner you introduced me to a concept that now is, I would say, one of the driving forces of my life, which is the learning medical system and how do we create it. So how much do you think that this interplay between the way software works and the way medicine works is the substrate for actually building a learning medical system and and what will it take to get us there? I think about this, the general idea of the learning medical system, the learning healthcare system, is that the care of this person in front of me Her care is informed by all people who have similar characteristics to her and who have similar healthcare story. And then her care and the outcomes from that are reinvested into a system of continuously aggregating data and information so that all people who follow her also have the best, if not better, care in the future. And if we're going to do that, we have to leverage not only the best of what medicine and science has to offer, but also what the best, the best of what engineering and technology has to offer. And so that you can't just imagine, um, boom, the solutions get built. The solutions actually get built by people who not only understand the problem, but look at it from different lenses and know how to talk to each other to build and to basically build together, but then also to iterate from there. And so I think that fundamental to building the learning healthcare system is to actually making sure that we have essentially built the environments that allow people to co-create. I'd like to ask you about what I think was one of those bridges that you built at, at Flatiron Health. Um, y- you took what seems to be a pretty brave step in trying to build this learning healthcare system and started to use 
routine clinical data, which is really difficult to analyze. And, you know, we might call that dirty data. Um, and it's not, it's not standardized. Um, the answers aren't obvious in, in looking at it. And uh, you put that to use at Flatiron. So I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are of how you got to that point, how you built that system, and, and how you look at real-world data now in, in the context of, of where the conversation is here. Information in the electronic health record is inherently messy. There are a ton of reasons why it is incomplete why the information in there in the electronic health record might be erroneous or might not really be a true representation of what was going on. And so you have to understand healthcare really well to also understand the idiosyncrasies of the electronic health record. Um, that being said, um, when you have the opportunity to understand healthcare really well, what you realize is you can now start to work through what are the reasons why the data might be messy. I call it have warts, right? And then, you know, like how to start to solve for that. And a couple of key issues. One is that data improve with use. So you need to use data and see where it, it is performing well for you and, and, and where it needs to be cleaned up, enhanced, linked, et cetera, in order to start to improve on it. And that was something that we really focused on on, on at Flatiron was to make sure uh, that we were constantly using our data internal to the company and also creating dashboards and other things where we showcased learnings, for example, to clinicians. So the clinicians could say back to us, you know, I, I know I saw more than 20 pancreatic cancer patients last year. You're missing something. Your, you know, your data feeds are broken somewhere, that kind of thing. So one is you have to use it to clean it up. The second thing that um, oftentimes those clinical intuition elements, the best way to clean data is real people who understand medicine and actually can solve for some of the messy problems by hand. So, you know, ideally, we would leverage machine learning, natural language processing, and all kinds of tools to clean data at scale and never look at it by hand. But the practical reality is a ton of it requires real people who are reading the entire clinical narrative and say, and say well, you know, based on this narrative, what that word really meant was X. Um, and simple things like whether the person was a smoker or a non-smoker sometimes can take a fair amount of work to figure out. So you know, getting, getting to really clean variables. Now, you can't do that for everything. So the third point is you actually have to be really thoughtful about which variables matter for your analyses and that you're going to clean up. And that means that you have to have a really strong understanding of when you're going to use data and for what purpose in order then to right-size the amount of work that you're going to go into in, in, in cleaning up your data. I think that the sort of sum total of all of this is that you can't be afraid of acknowledging that hard things are hard, and then you need to come up with systems to go after them. And the first thing that you need to do in order to start to solve for that is use your data, take a look, and then figure out how you're going to fix it from there. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. Um, and Flatiron has just been acquired, and you help navigate the uh, transition into Genentech. And now you're at this moment in time where everyone on Earth is reaching out and saying, come join us in our next adventure. And you start thinking to yourself, what comes next for me? And you went to the FDA. Tell us a little bit about what drove that decision and what you, what you saw as the big opportunities there. So it's really interesting. I could see, aside of Flatiron, how important the FDA was to set the guideposts to describe what does good look like. And meanwhile, when we were at Flatiron, we were working really hard to get high, to high quality data sets that would generate credible results. Um, we were frankly waiting for the FDA to, to describe what those guideposts were. But it, it was clear to me that it's really hard um, to, you know, kind of set the pathway. And now if you kind of go back to my core goal, which was to continuously take better care of the patient sitting in front of me, I, I was like, what's the next part of the equation to work on? And the next part of the equation to work on at that moment in time looked like policy and 
setting the boundaries and the guideposts of what is good look like, recognizing that I had started to see from the Flatiron side and from the health tech space that there was great need for leadership and um, an organization to kind of point the way as it related to how we were going to use data in new ways in the future. I think the other thing that I saw um, was that you know, 21st Century Cures had just been passed in December of 2016, and I could see the power of policy and law in helping to point the way for how we were going to develop new cures in the future. And it felt really important to now line up what did I understand about what could happen in academia and what could happen in health tech to now what could happen on the policy and regulatory side in line with the thinking around 21st Century Cures. When you first made that decision, I was reminded of two earlier great technologists that had a big impact in government. Todd Park, who you know from Athena, who became the US CTO and had a transformative effect on real world data by liberating a lot of the Medicare data set. Or DJ Patel, who became the US Chief Data Officer, who had a huge impact on getting the All of Us program up off the ground and doing a lot of other things with data science and government. In your time of the FDA, I saw you make a lot of bold new initiatives and in how the FDA looks at data and uses it and thinks about software and the role of machine learning. What are the thing, some of the things that you're most proud of that you accomplished at the FDA? Well, um, I'm in great company with that list. Uh, so I took on the role of acting CIO about two to three months after I got there. And I did so for two reasons. One is when I arrived at FDA, I realized, hey, wait a second, I came here to help set the direction with respect to how we're going to leverage real-world data and new clinical trials techniques and personalized medicine in the future. And wait a second, the FDA can't really receive data, and the FDA really can't review these new kinds of data sets because they don't have the right internal infrastructure and foundational capabilities to make that possible. And so I took on this role of... Um, acting CIO to work on that. The other thing that I could see was that um, we have more and more new drugs and new discoveries coming down our pipelines. And, you know, there's a thousand cell and gene therapy INDs. And if we're going to be able to have the FDA scale in line with the capabilities coming out of our labs, we're going to have to make sure that the FDA is leveraging data and technology in new ways to be able to scale. So those are my two observations. And it led to two, I think, pretty fundamental new initiatives at FDA that I think will have an important impact across all the industries regulated by FDA. So one was the Technology Modernization Action Plan, which got announced in September of 2019. That really brings FDA into a modern era with respect to how FDA basically leverages data and technology. It's a cloud-forward strategy, but not cloud-only. And really make sure that FDA has the people and the focus on technology that takes us into the future. And then the second was the data modernization action plan that got going soon after September 2019, but was announced in March of 2021, that really describes how FDA internally is going to put data to work and also how FDA is going to start to think about ingesting structured data into the future. And, you know, both of these now start to create a landscape where FDA is able to ingest and store and work with data of all types, which means that FDA will make more data-informed decisions. It means FDA will have more and more people who understand how to leverage data, people who have machine learning backgrounds, people who have, you know, new biostatistical skills, people who can bring that thinking to regulatory review of new drug and um, food applications, for example. And that's going to start to change how FDA thinks about data and asks questions of the industries regulated by FDA. And one other thing to say is FDA re regulates somewhere between 20 and 25% of the world's economy. So this is not just food and drugs, but cosmetics and animal products and tobacco and dietary supplements. And so when you start to think about it in that way, you start to realize that how FDA uses data and technology will have an impact across many different industries. So you've been part of clinical trials from the academic side at Duke and DCRI, from the industry side at Flatiron 
And then now from the regulatory perspective of the FDA, I don't know if there's anyone who's actually been able to have a seat in all three of those chairs. What have you learned and where do we need to go with clinical trials as a society? Oh, interesting question. So first of all, I, I would say that we need to have a twenty clinical trials vision for 2020 that incorporates new ways of using data and software and technology. And by the way, that that's, excuse me, not 2020, 2030 is the vision. 2021 is when we need to start working on it. We should not wait until 2030 for that to happen. Um, and we really need to be thinking about how we use um, software and data differently for clinical trials. What do I mean by that? A couple of tactical examples. One is that for our clinical trials infrastructure, we should be pulling data from all potential sources. Um, the appropriate data and the appropriate data quality needed for the task at hand. When we're just doing basic description of a cohort, we may not need to have really, really carefully cleaned data, but rather can have information coming from a variety of different data sets that describe the cohort. But when we're talking about endpoints and outcomes in our data sets, those data points absolutely need to be clean and precise and fully traceable back to source. So we need to be able to use data that's matched to the task at hand within our clinical trials engine. The second thing is we have to build clinical trials infrastructure that reaches all people and acknowledges that um, you're really a, a clinical trials vision for the future is inclusive and not exclusive. Um, the third thing is that as we think about building towards our clinical trials vision of the future, you know, people like to talk about, well, it should be decentralized or it should be centralized at sites or you know, we, we, we need to you know, make it easier for patients to participate. I think that all of those are true. We need to have the ability to have decentralized clinical trials capabilities that you know, meet patients where they are through, for example, telemedicine-based monitoring. We also need to have centralized centers at, that are, for example, associated with tertiary care centers because some drugs have really high toxicity profiles or we don't understand them yet. And we need to be able to have the ability within our clinical trials infrastructure to you know, match the complexity of the problem that we're trying to evaluate to the infrastructure and, and the place. Maybe just zooming out a little bit, the challenges that you're talking about solving are interlocking in a very deep way across um, you know, research that's generating capabilities, industry that's trying to put those capabilities to use, and then policy, which is you know, setting the guidepost, defining what good is, as you say. And you've practiced in each of these industries. And What's interesting to me is you've created teams and you've led in each of these industries, very different parts of our society. And I'm curious if you could synthesize what you've learned about leadership after having sat in each of those seats, as, as Anthony mentioned. Yeah, I, I was thinking a lot about this. And when I was a junior resident, um, just at the beginning of our junior residency years um, at, at Duke, we first we had to take the Myers Briggs, um, and then we had to sort of do this um, training retreat uh, as junior residents, where essentially, um, for all intents and purposes, it was leadership training light. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, I'm not really sure what this is all about. And then what ends up happening is when you're on the ward, you know, there is a junior resident or a senior resident leading the team. There's the attending. There's maybe two interns and, and one or two medical students. And what you realize is that. These teams, when you're the resident leading the team, you're making really hard decisions, but actually really your job is to equip each person on the team to be able to make um, decisions with confidence while also helping them know that you have their back. And I will never forget that experience for the rest of my life. When I was chief resident, I really realized that was my responsibility, was to simultaneously keep my eyes out for high-risk decisions that might um, ultimately get a patient or our health system into trouble, but you know, do so in a way that equipped people with the confidence to do their work well and make sure that um, I had their back. How did you come to that insight? Like, it, did, did that arise independently in you, or was there someone that tipped you off or told you? Because that's really an incredible perspective to have, to come to leadership in a part of our society that doesn't necessarily train you to be a leader. 
It's real. You know, the, the truth is, Alex, I don't think I ever really understood that was what I was learning until many years later. Um, when I was running the Center for Learning Healthcare at Duke, the idea was to try and bring together lots of different disciplines. And what I found was we needed to have everybody be able to sit at the same table. We physically sat at the same table. It's a large, long, round table. But also it meant that we had to trust each other in ways that can only be built by going to happy hour together or playing you know, croquet or whatever it is that builds teams. And that can't be seen as a cute, nice thing to have as an extra, but actually a foundational quality to building trust. And that I, what I found in every single one of my jobs, and it's been a recurring theme, it, you know, it was very important when I was at FDA, was how do you build trust among the teams? And that first starts by recognizing that as the role as leader isn't to puff up and be in charge, but actually to equip everybody to be really confident in how they do their job and make sure that people know that you have their back. You know, we're never really taught leadership in med school. And yet, so much of what your career is about is is actually being a leader. I know you're writing a book on it. What are the lessons for the next generation? Well, I think that one of the things that I, I learned in my time, and I would really like um, to help put forth to the next generation, is that leading with your heart and with your purpose is a much more efficient and satisfying and rewarding way of leading, right? I often hear that the best leaders have grit and fortitude. The best leaders have figured out how to manage through hard times and then lead people to continue to do hard work even in, in, in times when things are going well. But actually, when you really look at all of the capabilities of great leaders, those things like having grip, grit and fortitude, being willing to run into fires, being willing to do the hard work and roll up your sleeves when nobody else wants to do it are much easier when you have a vision of why you're trying to do what you're trying to do and you have a very clear purpose. And so starting off with purpose is a really important thing, I think, for leaders and it's going to be a core message of the book. A second thing is somebody taught me a long time ago to have very clear in your own head what your personal principles are. These, this is how I conduct myself and I want to show up every day. By being able to be clear about your own personal principles, and you can't have 20, you can only have two or three, it actually really helps you make sense of lots of tough situations and how you think you want to show up in those situations. And the last thing I would say is we talk a lot about mentors and having mentors. I, I think that it's not just that you need a mentor in your CV or, or a mentor that you can kind of point to, but actually the way that you construct your interactions with your mentors, th these are really important relationships that are going to take you through life. Um, I, I learned to build something that I call a mentoring strategic plan, where I actually have a very explicit way I think about working with the mentors in my life as well as the mentees in my life that helps me make sure I know the why in our mentoring relationship and also what I'm bringing to the table. Because when I'm a mentee, I want to bring to this something to the table as well. And then that actually helps to continue a really important relationship that takes me throughout my life. That's really insightful, Amy. But I do want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join us. You know, it's this moment where you've just finished the third leg of your journey. And I, I have a feeling that there's a fourth one coming. And so for us to have the chance to kind of talk to you is, is really just been such a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank you, Amy. It's been such an honor. Thanks, guys. Huge thanks to Amy Abernethy. We always take time at the end of each episode in the spirit of regular in-person meetups in Boston many years ago to discuss a big problem, a nail, and possible solutions, a hammer, inspired by what we just heard. Anthony, what do you have this week? Do you have a hammer or a nail? As usual, I'm going to go with a nail, and it's the nail of building a health data business. Building a, building a business, so we're not talking about a medical idea or about a technical idea. We're talking about a, a business idea this week. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. And maybe I'll make it just a little personal. I remember when I started at GB, 
a lot of my time and energies were spent on the scientific side or the technology side, thinking hard about that. And I grew up in an academic family, never grew up talking about business over the dinner table. But one of the things that over the last decade, I've really come to love is business strategy and actually kind of really coming to believe that it's actually quite an intellectual pursuit. And and I'll be honest, Flatiron, the company that Amy Abernethy and on last uh, season, we had Zach Weinberg, uh, the company that they built, is actually the company that taught me just how intellectual business can be. And it really kind of played an incredible role in my life. And I, I think there are very few people in the business world that I've admired as much as the Flatiron team. So let me start. And one of the things that I think is kind of curious about a lot of software businesses and data businesses, and you know, this is different than a lot of more traditional businesses, is that your user and your customer may not be the same thing, right? And so normally, if you're making widgets in traditional economics textbooks, you make the widgets and then a person buys them and they're both the user and the customer of the widget. But in a lot of software businesses, you see that those are two distinct roles and that the user may not be the customer. So concretely, if you think about um, Google Search, who is our benefactor, we're users, uh, we get it for free. And advertisers are actually the customer. So there's two different people. You know, if you think about LinkedIn, that's another example where we are users. We put our CVs up on it as professionals and network with other professionals. But the customer is actually an HR department and recruiting firms. You know, and actually, even going back in time, even before Flatiron, um, another example where I learned this was GitHub. Uh, and again, GitHub. yeah, okay. yeah. So this is interesting. Right when I first started at GB, they raised a hundred million dollar round, and I, you know, was a user of GitHub and loved it like everybody else. And, and just just for our listeners, GitHub is is kind of like the Facebook or LinkedIn, but for computer programmers. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's where we put our code, but it's also in some ways where we socialize at least a little bit. I, I've met some collaborators and now lifelong friends on GitHub because of the code that they that they yeah. wrote. And so I remember Andreessen Horowitz put in some huge round. It was still when it was an early company. And I remember like, those guys are really smart. But, you know, I was looking at the number of users and the business model. And, and to me, it just doesn't look like a billion dollar business because you, you pay for private repos. Public repos are free. There's only, only so many software engineers in the world. And I, I didn't get it. And I didn't get it. I started asking people this question. And then I remember uh, I was talking to Krishna who is very savvy with business models, is like, well, you know, here's what I would do if I were Andreessen Horowitz uh, and I invested in this company, is what's a $100 billion business is technical recruiting. Every group in the world is trying to recruit software engineers. And on GitHub, if you want the one person in Arizona that knows bioinformatics and ad tech, you can find them. So to me, you know, if I were going to invest in GitHub or if I were going to be the CEO of GitHub, that's the strategy I would choose. And, you know, whether or not they went after it and what the pros and cons, I don't know behind the scenes. But I remember it being this example of a light bulb went off that there's actually something to being a good business strategist, especially in these complex worlds like software and data, where you have lots of different personas and you're trying to bind them together. Anyway, so the company that I probably learned the most from about business strategy was the Flatiron gang. And they kind of saw this incredible opportunity that they started a company to focus on cancer data. And they said, all right, let's start iterating and learning. So their series A was them trying to figure things out. And right as the series B was coming up, uh, they had an opportunity to buy a company called Altos that was a maker of a cloud-based software as a service EMR. And it was kind of unique for three reasons. One is that it was actually a SaaS EMR, software as a service. Most EMRs are installed in the medical center, whereas theirs was actually kind of modern in that sense. And that was because they targeted a lot of community oncologists who didn't want to build a data center and set up their own kind of run their own EMR system. And it was, you know, a fine business kind of break even was good for the founders and supported the employees and everything like that. And their business was to sell software. So they were selling widgets, if you will. But, you know, the Flatiron folks had this insight that there was a whole other side of the market. And again, this general field often goes under the phrase two-sided markets. 
And there's a whole, I now, I now know, although at the time I, I didn't, that there's a whole microeconomic theory around how you build and maintain two-sided markets and the value they create, et cetera. As, as usual, the, the theory has preceded the practice in, in, in <laughs> some piece, and maybe the practice drags the theory forward here as well. Touche. Well said, my friend. Um, so anyways, but they realized that there was a whole other side to the market, that it was fine if they had a break-even business selling software on colleges, but there was the opportunity to leverage the underlying data to really improve drug development. Um, and you can imagine for recruiting patients for clinical trials, for being able to target your sales force if you're a pharmaceutical company, what prescribers are selling the most of the drug. And, and just so maybe I can read between the lines and, and, and guess a little bit, but the idea is information on what specific type of cancer a patient has is has been recorded. And maybe there's a drug company that's developed a new drug that nobody yet knows about that can target that specific kind of cancer, but they don't know who has that cancer yet in order to trial it, in order to test it out. And is, is, is the business in connecting those two pools of people, folks with information about a disease, people with the disease, and then those that are trying to treat it? Exactly. So it could be two different things depending on whether the drug is approved or in trials. So imagine you're a pharmaceutical company and you're trying to design your trial and set the inclusion and exclusion criteria and um, be able to say, these are the patients I'm going to enroll. You could imagine you put it down and you don't know how many people in the world will actually meet the inclusion exclusion criteria. So you might start off uh, by trying to run a trial for which there are not enough patients in the world. So the ability to go to a group and say, all right, how many patients are out there that could be recruited? What are the number of centers? How is it distributed? Is it they're all in one center? Or are they distributed across a large number of centers? That ends up being kind of crucial if you're trying to design a trial. Or once the drug is approved, trying to understand how it's being used in clinical practice, what fraction of oncologists are using it, what the real world evidence is, and trying to even kind of enable the underlying science and epidemiology. So, you know, this was this kind of huge insight that they had. And it was wonderful to watch them over this period of roughly five years as they really kind of saw this opportunity and then actually built a team to go after it. You know, EMR data is so messy. They had to build a whole infrastructure to structure the data, which, especially in the beginning, was very human-based. You know, of course, over time, you can start making it more and more automated, but NLP was not where it is today back then. And they actually kind of stared the operational problem in the face of building an army of people that could do the structuring and then do it in a way that's secure and compliant. You know, things like being able to do n-fold validation where three different people look at a medical record and call what the stage of the patient is. And if you're in a situation where there's not unanimity, calling in a fourth or a fifth, whatever the FDA or the pharmaceutical company might want you to do, it was just incredible. But again, this model of connecting two different user personas and creating value in their interactions, you start to see it over and over again in health data businesses. One, one thing I'm, I'm hearing as you're describing the Flatiron business is that they realized they could participate in a two-sided market where the customer and the user were not the same. But then you also described all of this incredibly difficult work in order to get that to happen. And, and what I think you're describing is actually a two-part business to serve a two-sided market. They have to have two separate products. Exactly. In, in one company. That, that's exactly right. Because they had the, the software that's e the clinician facing for the EMR but then they also needed to build the software platform to structure the data and organize it and deliver it to pharmaceutical partners. So it was actually exactly right. They had to actually build two completely different businesses that fit together like chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> Excellent. The, the Reese's Pieces of the business world. Yeah. That, I think that's, that's a good, good name for them. Anyways, but I, I guess I always go back to like um, when I first started at GB and came in as mostly a technician and it was over, you know, many year period that I started to really understand what business is and how it worked. This is the example that really stands out to me as the one that I, as the company that I learned the most of. So it's been such a pleasure to have Zach and then now Amy on the show. Maybe next year we'll try and get Nat, who is the kind of third uh, musketeer of that group. Oh, that would be excellent. One thing that I'm, I'm also hearing in, in your description of your personal journey and kind of understanding this business and the opportunity and also things that we've heard from other guests as well is 
highly technical people waking up to what seems initially like a non-technical problem, but really is like the heart of actually doing something in the world. And that, that kind of moment of insight and saying, okay, in order for me to actually solve my problem, I have to go get all these other skills, which maybe even, you know, I've never even come across before. And then even more extreme might not even be part of my identity right now. Right. So it sounds like also you kind of had a bit of a change in identity from scientist to, to business person and, and, and investor. It's totally true. I mean, you know, as you know, Alex did an MD PhD and came from an academic family. And until I was, call it 36 years old, 37 years old, my identity was totally about being a scientist and at least aspiring to be an intellectual. And yeah, actually, there was a certain cognitive dissonance with the idea of actually getting comfortable with the idea that I'm a business person and that I actually like business. Uh, yeah, it, it, no question. Took some accommodation. You had to admit it and then accept it. <laughs> exactly. You know, the stages of, of you know, denial, uh, grieving, bargaining, you know, the stages of, of loss. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I will say, actually, I think this is kind of a nice leitmotif for this episode because a lot of our guests have actually gone through that exact transition. Mm -hmm. You think about David Altshuler, Aviv Regev, Amy Abernethy, they all fit into this pattern of people that were academic leaders and then at some point realized that there was a mission that was important to go after and were willing to reinvent themselves to pursue it, which I think is actually, I have a lot of admiration for people who can do that. I completely agree. All right. Pleasure as always, my friend. Thank you for sharing so much, Anthony. That's really fascinating stuff. You may remember our conversation with Dr. Timothy Yu, the doctor who worked on the first ever N of 1 trial for the young girl Mila, who had the rare Batten's disease. Thank you to our listeners who contacted us after hearing the show. We want to let you know Mila's mother, Julia Vitarello, will be joining us as the last guest in this series to talk about the realities of being a parent of a child making therapeutic history. So keep an eye on our feed. This is a GV podcast and a Blanchard House production. Our producers were Hilary Geit, Lily Omani, Nico Raufest, and Rosie Pye. With music by Dalo. I'm Anthony Filipakis. I'm Alex Wilchko. And this is Theory and Practice.